Have you ever considered how many, how many ways we Americans use the word self? We must love the word. Let me give you some examples. We pride ourselves as Americans that we are self-assured and self-aware and self-actualizing. We stress being true to ourselves and being self-confident and being able to defend ourselves. We see ourselves as self-determining and self-expressing and self-governing. It's part of being an American. We we aspire to be self-employed and self-fulfilled. Our economy is built on self-gratification and self-help and self-improvement and self-indulgence. Psychologically, we are admonished to have a good or a positive self-image and to love ourselves and to have self-respect and self-worth, all the while becoming experts at self-justification. We praise those who are self-made and self-educated and self-motivated and self-sufficient and exercise self-mastery. We are known worldwide for being self-opinionated. We praise ourselves. We're self-reliant and we're self-satisfied, but not highly self-controlled. Physically, we self-medicate. We write best-selling books about our self-autonomy. And religiously, we're self righteous and self-worshipping, and best of all, we take billions of selfies. We are very self-oriented. It is in every single facet of our lives as Americans. Do you know why? This is not true elsewhere in the world, by the way. Sociologists tell us that the most important value we have as Americans, number one, is individualism. That is our most important value. The most important thing to an American is me, my rights. Don't you dare tell me what I will do. I choose for myself. We believe that as individuals, we get to write our own script. No one tells us what to do. What an individual wills or wants is the highest good, and the highest wrong is to tell somebody else what they must choose for themselves. So we believe, as Americans, one of the most important traits that made our country great is what's called rugged individualism. We are one of the only societies in the history of the world that has placed as much emphasis as it has on the self. And it's in the church a lot. We believe that each individual has a right to interpret the Bible however they jolly well please. Self-interpretation. We have a huge number of people who are today called Duns, D-O-N-E-S, who were involved in churches but no longer are. They're done with church. Why? They still say they're Christians completely. But they will not, they don't want to be a part of the institutional organized religion. They're done with it. Because they're individuals. We, um, we hold church membership very lightly because we're individuals. We reject accountability and discipline in a congregation. We ignore the unity of the church because, after all, it's about me. It's about myself. We reject church authority. That's kind of what it means to be an American. We're consumers. And we are in an age of the consumer church. We are, of all cultures, probably the most that is focused on ourselves 
And it has some good sides to it, obviously. It makes us pretty self-successful. However, it doesn't work in a church. And in fact, one of the greatest messages of a church is to try to teach people that it's not about ourselves. It's about God. It's about one another. It's about other people, not ourselves. Last week, we began talking about the subject that's, that encompasses two whole chapters of Romans, chapter 14 and 15, about unity in the body where we disagree on disputable matters. And we'll get back to that in a minute. But in our, sec- our text of Scripture today, we're going to look at how you do it. It's one thing to say to Christians, we ought to agree with each other and, or, or we ought to accept one another even when we don't agree. That's really nice. Sounds real Christian. But obviously, someone should ask the question, okay, sounds great, Tom. How do you do that? And that's what our passage of Scripture today is going to address. So we're going to talk about today, how do we, as it says there, how to pursue unity amidst diversity. That's our text of Scripture today. Now, um, someone has entitled this section of Scripture, Getting Along for the Glory of God. And um, the reason why this is so important is because disunity has always been a huge problem in Christian churches. Go back to the Bible. Corinth. Here's a city in Greece. This church was a mess, an absolute mess. And one of the main reasons it was a mess is because they divided over leaders. Some of them said, I follow Paul. He really knows the Bible. But I follow Apollos because he's a really good speaker. No, I follow Peter because he's after all the rock. And some said, oh, we're real spiritual. We follow Jesus. Can you imagine putting Jesus in the same category as these others? He doesn't belong there. But here the church was divided over person, different personalities. And the Apostle Paul says, this is horrendous garbage in the church of Galatia. The Bible said in the church of Galatia, they were, that's present-day Turkey, they were biting and devouring each other. Want to be a part of that church? You come into church to worship together and you get eaten alive. Isn't that wonderful? Or the church in in Ephesus or Colossae, they had to be reminded about unity. Or how about the church of Philippi? You want to be a part of that? There were two women who were fighting each other, so much so that they were splitting the church. Oh, church, church problems, church conflict, church disunity has always been a huge problem. A very huge problem. But it is not good. Why? Well, when churches fight, first of all, It messes us up as individuals. It stifles our maturity in Jesus Christ. And worst of all, it gives Jesus and our Father in heaven a really bad name. After all, we tell people, oh, we're in the business of reconciling people to each other and to God. And then we split and split and split and split, including this church. And what does that do to God's name? People say, oh, they talk about unity. Yeah, right. The Elks Club does a whole lot better than those churches do. And it does. How do you maintain unity? Especially when you disagree. As I said last week, of course, we don't have this problem in America. We don't have the problem of unity when we disagree because all we do is we start new churches. You don't agree about the color of the church, start a new church. You don't agree about the carpet, start a new church. You don't agree about masks, start a new church. You don't agree about schooling, start a new church. 
And those are only a couple of hundreds of issues. And so we start new churches. And did you notice none of the issues I mentioned have anything to do with the Bible or theology? You see, we divide over all kinds of little things. But it was always the case. The church has always done this. But it is a disgrace to the name of God. And we got to fight against it. We got to stop doing this. Because after all, eventually we'll end up with churches. Each family has its own church because we can't get along with anybody else. That's horrible. That's not what God intended. So our text today is going to be teaching us how to do it. Now remember, last week we talked about the weak and the strong. The weak, they're not physically weak. These are people who came out of a background where they had a lot of religious baggage. And when they became Christians, they brought this religious baggage with them, both Jewish and Gentile people. We all have baggage. And they brought it to the church. And so when a Jewish person comes to a church potluck and they, someone brings pork chops, they get up and run out because pork chops are unclean to a Jewish person. Or when, a, when, a, when a, someone in a potluck brings prime rib of all things, and the Gentiles who came out of paganism knew that that prime rib had been offered to demons in the temple, in the pagan temple. They get up and run in horror because they say now they're introducing demons into the church. Those are people who are called the weak. And the problem with the weak is they constantly are judging people who don't follow their rules. On the other hand, there are the people called the strong. Paul puts himself in the category of the strong. Again, it doesn't mean physically strong, because Paul tells us he was not physically strong. But these are the people who recognize that the food laws, Jesus declared all foods clean, and he's the ultimate authority. And, and the Gentiles realize that when you put a piece of meat in front of a pagan altar, they're not little demons that sneak inside the meat and then go inside your body when you eat it. That's baloney. And so they had no problem eating meat that had been offered to idols because they know an idol is nothing. An idol is simply a rock or a stone or a stick. It has no real life. It doesn't do anything. It's just a piece of garbage. And so no demons get in your meat when you offer meat before a rock. That's ridiculous. They're called the strong. And do you know the problem of the strong? They look down their nose at the others. So can you imagine what a wonderful church we have here? We have people called the weak who have come in with all this baggage, and they're judging those who don't follow their rules. And then you've got the so-called strong a bunch of arrogant twits who are looking down their nose at people who don't believe as they do. What kind of church are you going to have? I'll tell you what you're going to have. You're going to have what's called hell. That's hell. And that is not what God's in the business of creating. He's in the business of creating a little touch of heaven, not hell on earth. But how do you get past this stuff? That's what we're going to look at today. So Romans chapter 15, turn with me there. And as you do, I've got to introduce you to something that is interesting that you may not know about, but it's very common in the Bible. I'm going to introduce you today to what's called a chiasm. If you know English, you probably know what a chiasm is, but there are many of these in the Bible, and we find more and more of them all the time. Whole books of the Bible, like the book of Esther, is arranged in chiastic form. Our paragraph today is a chiasm. Let me explain what it is. It's a clever device. You all took English. 
When you write a paragraph in English, how do you write your paragraph? Remember, eighth grade English. Topic sentence, telling you what you're going to say. Develop what you said in your topic sentence. And in the last sentence, you summarize it. Everyone knows that. Don't you remember that? That's how you write a paragraph in English. But that's not the way the Hebrew people wrote They have a much, much more clever way of writing paragraphs. What they will do is they will introduce the topic in the first line, and in the last line of the paragraph, they'll have the same topic. Warning about stumbling blocks, verses 13b, and then do not do anything to cause a believer to stumble, verse 21. But then the second thought will will, will mirror the second to last thought. Nothing is unclean or All things are clean. The third thought will mirror the third to the last thought. Don't destroy one for whom Christ died. Don't destroy the work of God. And the main point, unlike English, the main point is in the middle. That's the main point. The main point here in this paragraph is why? What is God up to by telling us these things here? Do you see that structure? That's how this paragraph is put together. So when you're looking for the main point, you don't look at the beginning, you don't look at the end, you look in the middle. That's how it's done here. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look through this passage and try to figure out how, how do we, as Christians who love Jesus, and I think that's all of us here today, how do we learn to to, to fight for the unity of the Holy Spirit when we don't agree about disputable matters. Now remember, we're not talking about moral matters or theological matters. We're not talking about the deity of Christ. That's been settled by the church, never, never changed for 2,000 years. We're not talking about the things about which the Bible speaks clearly. We're talking about things about which the Bible does not speak. Last I knew, it doesn't address vaccinations. Last I knew, it doesn't talk about what you should do with the schooling of your children. No, it doesn't say um, whether or not you should wear masks in church. Last I knew, I didn't find that in the Bible. Maybe you can find it. I haven't found it. It's not there. And so there are many issues, but we fight over these issues. And does the Bible say that we we shouldn't have opinions on the matter? No, he says the opposite. God says, have strong opinions, but recognize there are several things. We're going to identify five of them today that are way more important than your personal opinion on these disputable matters. So we're going to be introduced to five principles today. The first principle is what I call the stumbling block principle. Now remember, we're dealing with three things you need to remember from last week. The Apostle Paul is going to bring up three specific issues that they fought over in the early church that are all disputable, namely food, particularly meat, number two, the day of worship, and thirdly, whether to drink alcohol or not. And by the way, this was not um, due to prohibition. This was because alcohol was also offered to the gods as libations to the gods. And because Drinking in a public setting like this was considered an act of worship to the Roman gods. Some people felt it was wrong. These are the three issues. 
Secondly, you need to remember that there was a clear distinction in the church between the weak and the strong, which we've just mentioned, and the common sin of the weak was judging others, and the common sin of the strong was condemning others. They, had, they were both sinning, but in different ways. And so today, the first principle is this. As followers of Jesus and members of the body of Christ, we choose to live our lives so that we do not hinder the spiritual growth of another believer. That's the first principle. Let's see how, what the Bible says. Therefore, that goes back to the previous section. Let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Instead of judging each other, instead of condemning each other, which are things that we should not be doing, protecting each other, edifying each other is what we should be doing. Someone wrote this. The strong are the ones who pride themselves on having the insight to see that their faith allows them to eat meat, ignore holy days, and drink wine. Paul has no quarrel with their basic theological view. Theologically, Paul is among the strong. However, if the strong, in the exercise of their freedom, cause people who don't see things as they do, to stumble. What does that mean, to stumble? What that means is to, um, to, spiritually, to be spiritually hurt, to go against their conscience, to have their relationship with Christ shaken, for you to exercise your spiritual liberty at the expense of your brother and sister in Christ, to stumble them, to cause them to fall, is wrong. And it is a very great wrong. Tony Evans, again, a pastor down in uh, Texas that I like, he said this, rather than asking, what faults can I find in my neighbor's lives? We should ask, how will my actions affect them? You know the famous line from the Old Testament, am I my brother's keeper? Of course, the answer is yes. Yes, we are. Now, the test case in the Old Testament, or in, in, not in the Old Testament, in the New Testament church was food, particularly meat. Now, I don't know if you know this, I, I study world religions a lot, and almost every world religion has food laws. Did you know that? Hinduism, meat. Um, Islam, they have their food laws. Judaism, food laws. Buddhism, food laws. Mormonism, food laws. Even some Christians have food. Seventh-day Adventists, food laws. Almost every religion in the world has food laws. To my knowledge, Christianity doesn't or shouldn't. And again, this is not for dietary reasons. This is not for, for physiological reasons. These are for ceremonial or religious reasons. All religions have food laws. And so when Christianity came on the scene and our Lord Jesus Christ said, all foods are clean. And when God told Peter over and over and over again, Peter, do not call unclean what God has called clean, food laws were taken away. That was revolutionary because all religions had food laws. And God said, no. 
And so what does the Bible teach about food laws? In the Old Testament, they were clear. The Jewish people had clear laws taken from Leviticus and Deuteronomy of what they could eat and could not eat. And the worst thing you could ever eat to a Jew was not pork or shrimp. It was meat offered to idols. Because they believed by eating meat that had been offered to idols, you are participating in idolatry. And they were totally against that, as they should have been. So should we. But when Jesus came on the scene, when he declared all foods clean, and when Paul came, when, when, when Peter came on the scene and God told him, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And when Paul came on the scene and said, no, I, the food laws are finished. That was revolutionary. But the church was packed full of people. The early church full of Jews and Gentiles who had all these food scruples. What do you do? What do you do if, if you go into a town and, 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 and the meat market is on the backside of the temple and all the meat had been offered to the gods before you bought it at the meat market? Should you eat it? Paul would say, maybe. <laughs> it depends. And by the way, they would, not just, they would not just have that meat offered to idols in the butcher shop, but they, the pagan buildings where they had their temples had banquet halls. And what they would do is they would bring the meat offered to the idols and then have a huge banquet inside the pagan temples. So the question arose among the Christians, should we go? Paul's answer, no. No, Paul know, Paul knew that there were not little demons in that meat, but by going to that place and having this meat offered to the idols and then participating, you are sending the wrong message about God. What if you go to someone's home? They invite you to their house and they, they, they serve you a filet mignon. Should you eat it if you're a Christian? If your friend who invites you is your neighbor and they're not a Christian, should you eat it? Paul said, Yes, I love filet mignon. But if they say before they serve the meat, by the way, Paul, this meat has been duly offered to the gods at the temple. Paul says, don't eat it then because they're trying to tempt you. Show your fidelity to Christ. You see, the matter is not that simple. And it seems that as the as the, food, as, as the gospel moved farther and farther away from the Jewish center in Jerusalem into present-day Turkey, Asia, and then into Europe and into Rome and ultimately to Spain, the Jewish influence was almost zero. And so people, when they talked about food laws, they go, what are you talking about? We don't know anything about food laws. Paul says, well, then things change a little bit. But the first principle is, we do not, we live our lives sensitive to the spiritual walk of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we, we choose not to hurt them in any way. We don't want to hurt them. That's the first principle. But someone could say, oh, Paul, that's horrible. To think I have to live my life constantly limiting my freedom because I'm worried about Joe Schmo's spiritual scruples? That's no way to live. Paul says, you're right. So the second principle is the freedom principle. And this is verse 14 and then verse 20. Paul says, I am convinced. Ooh, that's strong. Where does he get his convincing from? The Lord Jesus Christ himself. He said this. 
I am fully convinced, being persuaded by the Lord Jesus Christ, that nothing is unclean in itself. He takes us straight from the words of our Lord Jesus. Jesus was being condemned because his disciples were not washing their hands before they ate. And they said, well, Jesus, your disciples are not following the law and you cannot be the Messiah because you're not a law follower. Jesus says, wait a minute. You made that junk up. That is not from God's law. That's your law. Then he said this theologically, not only is that your law, but your law is theological heresy. Because what you're teaching by your law is that uncleanness is something that from the outside that comes into you. And Jesus taught, no, there's nothing outside of a person that can make him unclean. Uncleanness does not come from the outside in. It comes from the inside out. There's no, in, no environment, no person outside of you is unclean. Who did Jesus hang around with? We know who he hung around because this is his nickname. Drunkard, glutton, friend of prostitutes and sinners. That's his nickname. So, was Jesus a drunkard, a glutton, a frequenter of prostitutes and sinners? No. How did he get the nickname? That's who he hung around with. Well, wait a minute, that defiles you. No, there's nothing outside of a person that can defile them. Because defilement does not come from the outside in, it comes from the inside out. And the way you deal with defilement is deal with the human heart. And so the Apostle Paul says, what is my freedom based on? My freedom is based on the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but's a big word in the Bible. But if anyone regards something as unclean, for that person, it is unclean. If, Paul would say, if you as a, as a Gentile who, who was steeped in paganism and idolatry, If you believe that that meat that has been offered to an idols actually defiles you, if you eat it, it does defile you. If you think this is unclean and you do it, you're violating your conscience and you should not do that. Well, in verse 20, he says, similar, he says, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean. There he says it again. But it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes somebody else to stumble. Again, the principle is the freedom principle. We do have the freedom. Um, One of the the best words of Christianity is is freedom. Um, It is not by accident. I I would say every country in the world that is known as a free society has Protestant Christian roots or Christian roots. Why? And our nation, the greatest, we have, we have, we, our roots are deeply rooted in Christianity, in the Bible. There's a connection between God's word and freedom. Jesus said, don't you think for a minute I came to abolish the law? I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Paul said, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, permissible, but not everything is constructive, he said. 
the great line of the book of Galatians from written by the Apostle Paul. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourself be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Christianity and freedom go together. It's part of our, our inheritance as Christians. Martin Luther said it this way, A Christian is perfectly free, Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a is perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject of all, subject to all. Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system when Jesus died on the cross and gave his blood, his perfect blood for our sins. No more sacrificial system. Je- the Old Testament priestly system. Jesus is the perfect high priest who now has, is the only mediator between us and God. We need no other mediators. That system is over. We no longer need a temple where the glory of God resides because now the glory of God moves all over the world as the Holy Spirit inhabits his temple, our bodies, the Bible says. The establishment of the civil law, which governed the theocracy of Israel, applied to Israel, not to us anymore. In Christ. The Old Testament law has been fulfilled perfectly. We are the recipients of freedom in Christ, which is amazing. Well, the third principle, the stumbling block principle, the freedom principle, and now perhaps the most important of all, the love principle. Look at what he says here. This is verses 15 and 16. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you you know is good to be spoken of as evil. The principle is clear. As followers of Jesus and members of the body of Christ, we sometimes choose to limit our legitimate freedom out of our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. The principle is this. Love is greater than liberty. You do not exercise your liberty when that will destroy a brother or sister in Christ. Why? Because your love for your brother and sister in Christ is more important than exercising your personal liberty and autonomy. That's what the word of God says very, very clearly. Look at the words. Distressed, destroy, spoken of as evil. Tripping up a brother or sister in Christ can do substantial spiritual damage to people's lives. We don't do it. It is a grave matter to ruin a brother or sister in Christ for whom Jesus died. That is a very significant bad thing to do. If our liberty in Christ leads us to pride instead of love, it is misguided. If our liberty promotes idolatry, it's misguided. If our liberty leads to the hurting a brother or sister in Christ, it's misguided. If our liberty instills an attitude of my rights rather than my responsibilities, it's misguided. If liberty insists on what's permissible at the expense of what is beneficial, it's misguided. 
Liberty frees one from unnecessary scruples, but it puts upon us the responsibility of loving one another, the love principle. The next principle, I think, is probably the most uh, important in our world today. I call it the priority principle. And remember, from our chiasm, this is the central point, verses 17 through 19. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. God's kingdom is not primarily about what you eat and drink. It is primarily about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. When we prioritize eating and drinking above righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, we have reversed God's priorities. We are majoring on minors. And by the way, that was one of the primary problems of the Pharisees and us to this very day. We major on minors. Remember what Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin. They were meticulous. They went out into their herb garden every day, and they, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ooh, ten. They pelled a leaf. One, two, three, four, five, six, oh, a leaf. They picked, they counted and picked their herb leaves. That's how meticulous they were. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you should have done without neglecting the others. You strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. That's funny, by the way. That's hilarious. Jesus had a lot of sense of humor. How? Are you kidding? Are you kidding? You count your herb leaves and you don't even walk faithfully with God? You're joking. You've got your priorities completely messed up. You major on minors. And, and as I look at our, our, our culture today, our Christian culture, we have billions of people out there who have never, don't know anything about Jesus. They've never heard the gospel. We have all kinds of people out there who do not know about that Jesus Christ came and he gave his life for us so that we could have eternal life with Jesus. That's important. That's a major. As we are fighting and splitting over the wearing of masks. I mean... That is so ridiculous, you can only cry. It's so ridiculous. We've completely reversed our sense of priorities. We've put disputable matters far more important, like politics. People will split over politics in an instant. I noticed years for year after year, and I bring this up from the pulpit, you can talk about Jesus Christ and the gospel and the ministry of reconciliation and... People are sleeping, but you mention anything political, they're awake. Emotions are stirred by anything political. But Jesus, we sleep right through it. Where are our sense of priorities? We've got them all upside down. How can you have unity in the church when you prioritize disputable matters as most important and you forget the important things, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit? 
priority problems. So what God says, get your priorities right. Major on the majors, not the minors. Make the most important things to God. And, and Micah tells us, oh God, what does God require of you? Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. That's what God wants. Those are majors. Well, the last one simply is the conscience principle. And here's what Paul says. So, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. My parents used to say to me sometimes, M-Y-O-B. Any of you ever hear that? What does it mean? Mind your own business. (laughs) Yeah. Mind your own business. So, whatever you believe about these things, these minor matters, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Here's the principle. Your conscience can be educated, but it should not be violated. You should never violate your own conscience nor encourage anyone else to violate their own conscience. But over time, your conscience can be educated. What once you thought was wrong because of maybe the background, I I have these. Um, I was raised where dancing was a, a, a mortal sin. And so I couldn't dance to save my life. I do not believe that is the case. In fact, when I read the Bible, it talks about people dancing to the Lord. My conscience is not, I still can't dance, so I don't do it, but I, because I feel like I'm an idiot, but um, my conscience is not bothered in the slightest by that, but it once was. My conscience has been educated, but never should it be, uh, you should not compromise your conscience. That's what God says. But you don't push your conscience on other people. You don't do that. That's, that's not what God has. But if you have, if you have, If you have difficulties with with the rightness of what you're doing, don't do it. Your conscience is trying to tell you something, and God gave us our conscience. Well, how do we end? How do you pursue unity when we disagree on many things? Please, don't go find a church where everyone agrees with you. That is not an honor to God. It doesn't make us grow. The stumbling block principle. Flaunting your freedom can spiritually damage other people. Don't do it. The freedom principle. Liberty is good. Liberty in Christ is good. We should want that to grow. But if we abuse it and bring harm to other believers and dissension to the church, it will take something good like liberty and make it look like evil, which is not what God wants. The love principle. Liberty, my liberty in Christ is not as important as my love for my brothers and sisters in Christ. The priority principle, the kingdom of God does not focus on eating or drinking or special days or clothing. It focuses on righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Those are our priorities. And last, conscience. The conscience should not be violated but it can be educated. You all have heard of Queen Victoria, that long reigning queen of uh, the British uh, Commonwealth. When she was a child, um, she didn't know uh, that she was uh, in line for the throne of England. Her instructors did know that she was in the line and they tried to prepare her for her future. 
But they were frustrated because nothing would motivate her. She didn't take any of her studies seriously. And finally, her teachers decided one day that they would tell her that she was going to become the Queen of England. Upon hearing this, Victoria quietly said, then I will be good. The realization that she had inherited this high calling gave her a profound sense of responsibility that affected her conduct for the rest of her life. And that's how we ought to live our lives. When we know who we are, we are the children of the king. We are royalty. Then I will be good. Why? Because we have a high calling. Let's pray. We do have a high calling, Heavenly Father, because our Lord Jesus, the King of kings, he's the Lord of lords. He's on the throne of the universe, the only one worthy in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And you've called us your children, sons and daughters of the King. Oh, I pray, Heavenly Father, for this body, that this body would grow, that we would grow in unity, that we would grow in diversity that we would grow in our maturity, that we would grow in the ability to love people who are not like us in such a way that we bring great glory to you because that's what heaven's going to be one day and it will be great. We say together, Heavenly Father, may Jesus return soon. In his name we pray, amen.